Even as we've just confessed, we have the privilege now of coming to God the Father on high through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, even active and among us now. Let us go again to our triune God in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today as thankful, adopted sons and daughters of God, as those who have been engrafted into Jesus Christ, your Son, by the mystical work of your Holy Spirit. We know, Lord, even as we've confessed, that by nature we are children of wrath, but by your grace we are children of God. As such, we come before you today to praise you, our Lord, because you have placed a new song in our mouth, a song of redemption, a song of salvation, a song which praises your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We sing it to you among the assembly of your people. And we even do this ascending your holy mountain by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we come before you, your holy throne, with all those who have come before and with the whole heavenly Hosts, and we are praising you as holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. We are glad in you, our Maker, and as the children of Zion, we rejoice in you, our King. Father, we pray that you would be present with us by your Spirit to receive our prayers, praises, and petitions today, which we offer by faith in your Son. We ask that you would receive them as a pleasing aroma offered in his hand. That is our only hope, that Jesus Christ is our mediator, and that he stands before you with his pierced hands and says, Be merciful to them, Lord. Lord, we marvel that you take pleasure in your people, and that you adorn the humble with salvation, We pray that you would help us this day to humble ourselves before your throne. Help us to be cut down by your law, but also comforted with your gospel. We ask that you would be present and active among us, among our children and all the visitors here. Lord, your covenantal promises are to us and to our children, to all those who are far off. Lord, that's who's gathered here today your covenant people and their children and visitors, and we pray that your mercy would be upon them. Lord, please help none of us to leave this place not receiving and resting on the Lord Jesus Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. Help us to receive the light of the world and more and more dispel the darkness from our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would be merciful to us and to our children. And we pray that as we receive and rest on Christ, that we would respond well to your gospel grace. I pray that we would have high praises for you on our lips, telling all those around us of the salvation which you have brought to your people. That the two-edged sword of your word would be testified by our mouths so that we would be faithful witnesses among the nations and people with whom you call us. Lord, we traverse the streets of Babylon but we are citizens of Zion above, of the heavenly Jerusalem. May our lives, may our speech reflect this, and may we give glory to you. May the nations not 
blaspheme you because of us, but may they give praise and honor to you as our God and our King. Even so, we ask that you would bless and protect your people wherever they may be gathered in your name today. We know that by faith we are gathered with them around the same heavenly throne. Lord, we may be bound and bruised, but your word is not. But it continues to go forth and to do that which you send it out to do. So we pray, Lord, that through the ministry of your ministers and missionaries, weak men though they be, that you would make disciples of the nations through the ordinary means of grace which you have given to your church, through the preaching of your word, through the administration of your sacraments, and through prayer. We pray that you would gather the nations and that the knowledge and the glory of the Lord would be over the earth as the waters cover the sea. To that end, as we come to the reading and preaching of your word, we ask that you would strengthen, empower, and embolden your pastor, uh, the pastor here, Joel, that you would help him to speak well, and that you would give us ears to hear, give to us eyes to see, and Lord, give us hearts which receive what the Spirit is saying to the churches, even today. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our all-sufficient Savior, saying, Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, do turn with me in your Bibles to... Paul's letter to the Romans, to Romans chapter 3. We find ourselves here in Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 through 26. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? The Word of God, let's give it our full attention. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. You have probably noticed in your reading of the Bible over the years 
that there are often little translation notes in the margin or down at the bottom of the page. These marginalia or footnotes are, are for things that the translators felt that it would be important for the reader to know. In our Bibles, uh, these little notes are almost always related to either textual variants or interpretive translational choices. But when Martin Luther was translating the Book of Romans from Greek into the German language, he left an interesting little note in the margin of his translation of this passage. It wasn't a note about a variant. It wasn't a note about an interpretive translation choice. Instead, it was a note to the reader to give special attention to what God was saying in this particular passage. These were his words. He scribbled, Take heed to what is here. It is the central and most important passage of the epistle and indeed of the entire scripture. Now, when a Bible teacher of Martin Luther's caliber tells you, listen up, because the passage before you today is the most important passage in all of Scripture, you do well to listen up and to take heed. And Martin Luther wasn't alone in his assessment. John Calvin said something similar. He said, there is probably no passage in the whole Bible of greater significance as regards the justifying righteousness of God. For a contemporary witness to the significance of this passage, Leon Morris has said that this is possibly the most important single paragraph, not just in Scripture, but ever written. And not that my opinion counts for much, but I agree with these fathers in the faith. If I had to choose a single passage of scripture that was absolutely essential for your understanding well what the good news of the gospel is, I would choose Romans 3, 21 through 26. And so now that I've built it up, how do I possibly do it justice in a sermon? Well, I'm not going to do it in one sermon. I'm going to do it in two sermons. So we're going to slow down here. For the first time in Romans, we're going to just pump the brakes a little bit. And we're going to try to look at this passage over the course of the next couple of weeks. And as I've been thinking about how best to organize what is here, I thought it would be good to organize it in terms of what we learn about the gospel of our salvation, that it is, in the words of our Reformed Fathers, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, of course, many of you will recognize that those statements are three of the five so-called solas of the Reformation. A sola is a Latin word meaning alone. And as the Reformers sought to distinguish their teaching from the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, these solas served as, a, as sort of theological slogans which articulated the recovery of the gospel that was happening during their time. Whenever Rome said salvation was something plus, 
The reformers said, no, salvation is by this alone. So, for example, uh, they said that it was grace plus merit. And the reformers said, no, salvation is by grace alone. Rome said that salvation depended upon your faith plus your works. The reformers said, no, it is received by faith alone, although that faith is never alone. Where Rome said that salvation was mediated through Christ and Mary, co-redemptrix and mediatrix, the reformers said, no, it is in Christ and in Christ alone. And so you can see why this passage of Scripture was so important to our fathers in the faith, because it so very clearly clearly teaches that the revelation of Christ's righteousness in the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so over the next couple of weeks, as we look at this, we're going to be thinking about those alones, Today, we're going to touch on the first two aspects of this, that God's gift of righteousness is by grace alone, and that it is received through faith alone. And then next week, we'll consider how this all comes to us in Christ and in Christ alone. And so as we look at this passage together, I want to look at it under two main points centering on the righteousness of God. First, we will see the revelation of God's righteousness in verse 21 the revelation of God's righteousness. And secondly, we will see the reception of God's righteousness in verses 22 through 24, the revelation of his righteousness and the reception of his righteousness. Now, as we begin to consider this revelation of the righteousness of God, it's important to see that Paul's words here are sort of closing a parenthesis that he opened all the way back in chapter 1 and verses 16 through 17. Those are very important verses. I, I told you that when I was preaching on Romans 1, 16 and 17, that these were the thesis statement of the book of Romans. Paul said in those verses that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he told us why it is the power of God unto salvation. He says, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul laid out this grand theme about the revelation of God's righteousness, that the just shall live by faith. And then he spent the next two chapters meticulously demonstrating how all of mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, are guilty before God. As he summarily puts it here in verse 23, a most famous verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you remember that for the past two chapters, he has been dismantling every argument and every single excuse that might be offered block by block He has left the whole world like Job, right? Remember Job standing before God with his hand over his mouth. He will not answer back to God because he knows that he is guilty. And Paul has left the whole world in this state. 
hands over their mouths. As he says in verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And so for the past seven sermons, actually, I have been working through these two chapters week after week. The wrecking ball of God's law has been smashing into our excuses. It has been smashing into our pride, our wickedness, and putting us in our place. And so I suspect that, like me, you are more than ready for some good news. And here it is. And it does not disappoint. And it comes and begins with these two beautiful words, but now. Yes, the whole world stands guilty and condemned under the wrath of God. But now, but now God has done something. God has intervened. God has acted powerfully and savingly in his son, Jesus Christ. And these words, but now, indicate not simply a logical progression in Paul's thought as he moves from the law to the gospel, but also, I think, more significantly, a progression in the history of redemption. As all the law and the prophets promised this coming Savior, and now it all comes to fulfillment in the substance, in the person, in work of Jesus Christ. So that now, standing adjacent to this harrowing revelation of God's wrath, there is a new and glorious revelation of righteousness. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been revealed, has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? We have seen throughout these last several chapters that Paul is very concerned with this concept of God's righteousness. And righteousness consists in being and doing what is right as it is defined by God's law. God's law is a manifestation of his righteousness because it reflects his own righteous perfections. It reflects the righteousness of God himself. Righteousness is an attribute of God. And yet it's clear that when Paul is speaking here about this manifestation of the righteousness of God, he is not talking about the manifestation of his righteousness in the law. He's talking about another manifestation of his righteousness, a manifestation of his righteousness which is quite apart from the law. He's speaking about the manifestation of his righteousness now in the gospel, that gospel which is the power of God unto salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. This good news that God forgives and justifies sinners and accounts them as righteous in his sight, not for anything in them, but wholly on account of the righteous perfections of Jesus Christ. And the law has absolutely no part in this way of being justified before God. For by the works of the law, no human being 
will be justified in his sight. We need to get this into our heads. Like Pastor Crawford was saying, we're always saying, what can I do? Just show me what to do and let me do it. And God says, I've shown you what to do. And you have not done it. The law is altogether useless as a way of righteousness for sinful human beings. Now, that does not mean that the law is useless. The law is very useful as a perfect rule of righteousness. As Paul says, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good, and we agree with the law. It serves to show us what God requires and desires. And yet you see, by the very fact that it shows us what is required, it also shows us where we fall short of that requirement. As that perfect rule of righteousness, it shows us where we are crooked. And so if no one can be righteous in that way, how can anyone be righteous? That's what Paul's after. And that's what he's explaining. He's telling us that there is a righteousness from God that is apart from the law. And yet notice, at the same time, although it's apart from the law, it's not actually something new. In fact, the law and the prophets have been bearing witness to it all along. The law and the prophets have been speaking about this way of righteousness. The law and the prophets, of course, is shorthand for speaking about the whole of the Old Testament. Maybe you remember how Jesus met with his disciples on the road to Emmaus and how he opened their eyes and he unveiled to them the scriptures, how he explained to them from all the law and the prophets, the things concerning himself. And we can see that the law and prophets were testifying to it right here in Romans. Because what are the examples that Paul will choose for the revelation of this righteousness of God in the gospel? He chooses Abraham. He chooses David. These godly men who lived under the law and yet lived by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Even the principal text that Paul is sort of exegeting comes from one of the prophets. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, this is not a new way of righteousness. It's not a new way of salvation. This has always been the way of salvation and the only way of salvation. Uh, for example, think of the way that Paul is going to write later in this letter. He's going to ask the question, what shall we say then? This is from Romans 9. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. This is not new. 
This has always been God's plan and purpose that salvation is through faith alone. But now, this way of righteousness has been manifested with a measure of clarity unknown before the coming of Christ. In the same way that you might, you might see the shadow of someone coming around a corner. And you would know that there was someone coming because you saw the, cor- the shadow. The shadow was real. It bears witness to the reality of the person. But their actual substance is hidden until that moment when they're manifest and when they themselves actually come around the corner. So it is here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is that revelation of God's righteousness. Well, having considered this revelation of God's righteousness, let's go on to consider the reception of this righteousness. Let me put it in the form of a question. How is it that sinners, how is it that a sinful man or a sinful woman or a sinful boy or a sinful girl How is it that they might receive this righteousness from God? How is it that they might be accounted as righteous in his sight? How do you receive this righteousness? Well, let me give you the answer up front. Paul says two things in these verses. He says that the reception of this righteousness is through faith and that it is by grace. The reception of this righteousness is through faith And it is by grace. In verse 22, he identifies this righteousness from God as the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness is the righteousness which is from God in Jesus Christ. It's Christ's own perfect righteousness. As Bavink says, this righteousness of Christ is so perfect, it is so adequate, that it requires no completion or no supplementation of our own. You cannot add anything to this righteousness. There is nothing you can do to elevate the righteousness of God in Christ. It needs no completion. It needs no supplementation. It is perfect and adequate, and that is why it can only come through faith and apart from works, because what would your works do? They would only foul it up. (laughs) You could not add to the righteousness of Christ. You could only detract. But God has determined that all of the perfections of Christ's righteousness, all of his obedience to the Father, all of his conformity to the law, all of the merit of his life, all of his obedience unto death, all of it, the whole package, comes to us as we are united to Christ in faith. And faith is itself not even a work. Faith is just, like so many have said, that open hand that receives the gift of Christ and his righteousness. Faith receives and rests in Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel. Even the power of faith is not in faith. Faith itself, apart from Christ, has no power. 
We often will say that we are saved by faith. We're using that as shorthand, but actually we are not saved by faith. We're saved by Jesus. We're saved by a person, and we are saved by Jesus through faith. When we say that we're saved by faith, that's what we mean. But it's important that we're clear that we are actually saved by the one we're trusting in, by the object of our faith. Faith is simply the instrument by which we are engrafted into Christ and accounted in him as righteous. You see, lots of people have, quote-unquote, faith. Can that faith save them? That's a question that James asked. Does all faith save? No. Your faith is only as good as what you are trusting in. Some trust in horses. Some trust in chariots. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the one whose very name, Jesus, means God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. That was the message of the Gabriel, of the angel Gabriel to Mary, wasn't it? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Why was it important that his name be called Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's why it was necessary. Because his name is the name upon which we call and which we trust. And, and notice what Paul says here. He says that this way of righteousness is through faith and it is for all who believe. Now, why does Paul say it like that? Is this just a redundancy? Some believe it is. Is he just sort of unnecessarily repeating himself? It's through faith for all who have faith. I don't think so. I think rather what he's saying is he is now saying something about the scope of this justifying faith. That this way of righteousness through faith, this way of Trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation is not just for the Jews, and it's not just for the Gentiles. It is not just for Old Covenant saints, and it's not just for New Covenant saints. This way of righteousness, through faith, is for all who believe. It is for everyone. And I think that's borne out by what he says next. There's no distinction. That is, there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, right? He's been arguing this. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We all fall short of the glory of God. We have this terrible way of, of thinking that we are above others, of measuring ourselves and measuring our righteousness against the standard of other people. But when we measure ourselves against the standard of God and of his righteousness, that's when we realize that we fall terribly short. One commentator gave this striking illustration. He said, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are all short of the glory of God. But so are you. Perhaps they stand in the bottom of a mine, and perhaps you pride yourself as standing on the crest of an alp. 
but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. When you zoom out, when you zoom out and you realize how far above the righteousness of God is and how far below your righteousness is, there is no room for pride. What then becomes of our boasting, Paul says? It is excluded. There is nothing that we can boast in. We all fall short of the glory of God, but in falling short of the glory of God, if there's no distinction in that, he also says there is no distinction in the gospel. If there's no distinction when it comes to God's wrath, there is no distinction when it comes to God's grace and this revelation of his righteousness. And that is the second way in which we receive this righteousness. It is not only through faith, but it is by his grace as a gift. It's a gift. It's by his grace as a gift. We can speak of God's grace as simply that undeserved or unmerited favor and kindness towards sinners. Salvation is not something that we deserve. Much less is it something that we have earned. It is not an arrangement where we do our part and God does his part. It's not synergistic, not at all. It is either all of grace or it is not of grace. And Paul says that it's all of grace. Beloved, it is all of grace. Our justification is by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I can't wait to preach on those words next week. I was going to try to do this all in one. And I stopped midweek and I said, no, that's not happening. Next week, we will look at those wonderful, amazing words, justification, redemption, propitiation. We'll find ourselves in the courtroom. We'll find ourselves in the slave market. We'll find ourselves in the temple. But that's next week. They are all wonderfully rich expressions of God's grace to us. But today I just want us to appreciate the way that we receive these things. That they come to us through faith and by his grace as a gift. You know, that is the language that Paul consistently uses throughout the book of Romans. He'll use it repeatedly in chapter 5 as he speaks about the free gift. Most of us are probably familiar with that expression in Romans 6.23 where he says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Righteousness and life come together. They come together as a free gift from the one who owes us nothing and yet gives us everything. From the one who owes us nothing and yet to whom we owe everything. And what a gift. What a gift. It comes freely to us, but it was not free. It was a gift of great cost. We were guilty and condemned. We were deserving of our sentence. We were like Barabbas. 
right? That treasonous, murderous rebel who is exchanged for Christ. And on the eve of our execution, where we should be nailed to the tree, the perfectly righteous Son of God instead offers Himself up in our place. He goes to the cross. He suffers for us. He bears the penalty that is due to us for sin. He bears the wrath and curse of God. Beloved, that is no small gift. That Jesus should suffer on your behalf. That the perfectly righteous Son of God should feel any pain at all and yet feel that infinite pain. It's no small gift that God accounted to Christ all of our sin and what was due to us for our sin. It's a gift of infinite proportion. And yet that's only part of the gift. That's only part of it. For God not only counts to Christ what was ours, God also counts to us what was Christ's. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the reason why the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's because life is what Jesus deserved for his righteousness. And in the gospel, we're counted with the very righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are crowned in him, robed in him, rewarded in him, inherit in him. And all of it is by his grace as a gift. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And yet, it is never alone in those whom God justifies. For all those whom he justifies, he also sanctifies and he glorifies. So that as recipients of such grace, we're both privileged and empowered to live for the glory and honor of him who loved us and gave himself up for us. Paul will later say, let those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We don't live for ourselves any longer. We live for Christ. Not in order that we might repay God's gift. We can never repay his gift. If we could, it would no longer be counted as a gift, but as our due. Right? That's part of where Paul is going. But what we can do is we can marvel at his love, trust in his goodness, praise him for his kindness, thank him for his grace, and live for his glory. You know, it's, it's no wonder that as Martin Luther really began to understand the gospel, or to put it in his words, when he began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely faith, that he said that he felt himself altogether born again and as though he had entered paradise through open gates. I hope that is true of you. That as you really begin to appreciate the gift of God and that you have no part in it, but you simply receive it in faith and by his grace as a gift, that you feel as though you have entered paradise through open gates.
So let us note well that little note in the margin of Martin's text. Take heed to what is here, beloved. It is the central and most important passage of the epistle and the most glorious in the entire scripture. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we marvel at your word, we marvel that you would do this for us, that you would send your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. And that this good news is even now going out. You, you raised up your servant Paul and gifted him to proclaim this news throughout the world so that it might be clear that this righteousness of God is being manifested apart from the law. Even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to lay this up in our hearts, that we would no longer, as we're about to sing, that we would no longer fear your displeasure, whom to save freely gave your most cherished treasure. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work this in us and that our lives might be given back to you as a pleasing sacrifice. And we say it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is my gift, my very self. This meal shows us, in many respects, that way of righteousness. That we don't come to this meal because we've had a good enough week, because we've done just enough works. We come to this meal wretched, worn, bruised, battered, with open hands, in need of grace, and with faith to feed upon Christ. That's how we come here. And so if that is how you are coming today, then you are welcome to come and invited to come. For all those who have trusted in Christ, who belong to his church, who have been baptized into his name, who have repented of their sins and are desiring to walk in a manner worthy of him, who are living by faith and repentance, are welcome at this table. But if any of those things are not true of you, if you, if you know in your heart that you are not trusting in Christ, that you do not belong to his church, then this meal is, is not for you. And yet it could be. Because the scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Today you have heard the message of good news. It has gone out to you the way of righteousness that is not through your works, but is through faith in Christ and by his grace. And so if you want to know what it means to be a disciple of Christ and to follow him in faith, please come and speak with myself or one of the elders. We'd love to talk with you about that. But as we come to the table today, let's come with open hands, ready to receive what the Lord would put in them. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we come to your table, we, we come like that Syrophoenician woman who said that she was not even worthy to gather up the crumbs that fall from your table. And yet, Lord, you invited her to come. And so, Lord, today we pray that we would come boldly and in faith to receive these gifts of your grace because here we receive Christ himself through faith and all of his blessings for our salvation. And so, Lord, take now these 
ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.